Welcome to the Bureau Briefing, a podcast by the Bureau of Digital, an organization devoted to giving digital professionals the support system they never had. Each episode, we're going to talk to a member of our community doing awesome, inspiring things. Now for your host, Carl Smith. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Bureau Briefing. It is Carl, and with me today, I have got Justine Areche. How's it going, Justine? I'm great. How are you, Carl? I'm great. You know, we met at Hybrid in Berlin earlier this year. And first of all, I truly enjoyed your talk. You gave a great talk with a a partner about how devs and designers and how introverts and extroverts work together. So first of all, hilarious, informative. (laughs) Thank you for giving that talk. No problem. It was super fun to give, plus a good excuse to have all of those gifts. Okay. <laughs> I'm still using the Michelle Obama Muppets gift constantly. Exactly. You know, I have threatened to have a no gift conference. Oh wow! I know, and everybody told me to stop just being stupid. <laughs> It's Damn like, it, gifts are amazing. Like, why are you so down on the gifts? And so it's like, all right. I guess unless you have epilepsy or some motion sickness <laughs> disorder, then, you know, gifts are pretty great, but they are ableist, so. People feel the same way about peanuts, you know? Oh, yeah. I had to make myself like peanuts. That's a fun fact about me. They, uh, I was talking about the Charles Schultz comic strip. <laughs> that peanuts. No. Uh, I grew up watching it, but I was really more of a Marmaduke kind of gal. Whoa, nice. Who doesn't like a I big like dog? I like big mutts, and I cannot lie. So. Oh, I saw that shirt on a plane the other day, and I was like, <laughs> ma'am, I'm, I know we don't know each other, but thank you. Thank you for that, because I needed that. Now, later on, uh, we were actually at an after party, and we started having a conversation, and you mentioned having an eating disorder. Isn't that how you make friends at after parties? You just approach strangers on the wall and say, hey, fun fact, I have an eating disorder. Ask me how. <laughs> well, and you know what? It worked. <laughs> because <laughs> and that's why I keep doing it. It was one of those things where I was like, I've never met anybody who was open about where they've been, where they are, how those types of things have impacted them. And that was really why I wanted to get you on the show, because... I know for a lot of us, especially the people that are listening, we're probably extremely ignorant to what is going on with a lot of the people that are around us. So if you would be just so wonderful, could you explain or or kind of tell the story? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So first of all, I just kind of like want to give a disclaimer on um, what I'll talk about, um, a trigger warning, if you will. Um, So I will be talking about eating disorders, depression, anxiety, um, some self-harm. And yeah, I think that about covers it. Ah, Substance abuse. Almost forgot that one. That one's a good one. Um, It's a very popular one. Yeah, it's super popular, especially in tech. Um, so yeah, uh, when I was 19, um, I was actually kind of a, a late eating disorder, um, a late adopter, if you will keep the software uh, things going on. But, uh, yeah, I just, um, I can't really pinpoint where it began. I do know that I like had accidentally lost a bunch of weight and realized I think something clicked in my head that if I don't eat or, you know, 
that I can lose a bunch of weight. And I was always kind of a chubby kid. Um, and it never really used to bother me until at some point, I guess it did. And, um, yeah, my parents, uh, discovered that I had been losing a bunch of weight and, um, my dad actually is the one who discovered that I'd been purging my food. Um, and if you're not familiar with what that means, it's when someone forcibly removes, um, like, uh, weight or calories or food from their body. So, um, they wanted me to go into an outpatient program at the Cleveland clinic. And from there, that was a six six week program. And, um, I was diagnosed with bulimia nervosa, which is the, uh, less popular younger sister, kind of the, you know, the, what's the middle kid from, uh, (laughs) Malcolm. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I was going with the Brady Bunch, but we'll we'll go uh, with Malcolm. <laughs> Jan? Jan, that's it. Bulimia is Jan as Marsha is to anorexia. Um, but yeah, so um, I started the six-week outpatient program, and I managed to um, successfully... Um, you know, complete that program. And from then I'd pretty much been able to live a fairly normal life without much relapse. The program, you know, since I was so young and I hadn't been, um, quote bulimic for that long, it was like, I was kind of a good candidate to succeed in that program. Um, and since I was getting treatment that already meant that I was going to be more successful than people who don't receive treatment. However, um, I had my most major relapse when um, I was late in my 20s, and it was onset by the fact that I was sexually assaulted at a tech conference. And here's the thing about eating disorders is people think they're often just to be skinny, but in reality, it's kind of a way of controlling things, things in your environment, maybe when things are chaotic. And there is one thing that you can control, and it's what your body looks like and what goes into it. Um, So um, I fell back into my bulimic tendencies. I basically stopped eating. Um, I lost, I think, 20-something pounds um, in a very short amount of time, about like two months. Um, And I just started drinking super heavily, and I just couldn't get myself out of this cycle. And it was really like scary and terrible time for me. I, you know, lost my job. I got a DUI. I uh, lost a relationship. Meanwhile, I'm still speaking at conferences, and there's no better place to hide an uh, alcohol abuse issue than at tech events, because about anybody will buy you a drink, uh, especially if you're the only woman in the room. And it was just a really terrible time for me. Um, I thought about killing myself. I was cutting again, which I hadn't done in a super long time. Um, all the while I did manage to get a new job at Travis CI, which is where I still work. Um, and I moved to Berlin and I thought I could get away from my problems in Ohio and I could kind of fix myself if I just left. Well, it turns out that you're eating disorders and your um, mental health issues have no problem also getting a passport and following you abroad. So that's exactly what happened. And anybody who's ever been to Berlin knows that Berlin certainly isn't the city to try and hide from your issues. Um, You'll just be like everybody else, but that doesn't mean it's a great place to kind of cope and recover. It was, 
uh, November, uh, almost two years ago, I think, um, I was visiting my family in Ohio and I had decided to volunteer to cook the entire Thanksgiving meal, which I think <laughs> just like speaks like really funny things about wow. a eating disorders and how obsessed you become with food and B, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> Cause like, wow, Thanksgiving is stressful. Um, and, um, just like any, any day, I think it was November 25th, uh, like any normal day I had already binged and purged a couple of times. And that's typical when I was home alone and my parents were off at work. And I was making the vegetable stock from scratch because I was going to make vegan shepherd's pie, uh, which turned out to be amazing, by the way. Um, (laughs) But I found myself unable to breathe. And I just keep trying to situate and resituate myself onto like some of the sofas or on the stairs. I tried the floor. The dogs thought it was a pretty great game. But I started getting really scared. And I thought, I'm going to die alone in this home. And so I tried to um, call my partner, who was also visiting Ohio at the time with me, but my T-Mobile super reliable phone service had no credit on it, oh. so I couldn't uh, couldn't make a call. And I sent a desperate iMessage saying, "Please get here as soon as you can," in like hey, emergency. And uh, I called nine one one because you can call nine one one even if you don't have credit. All right. phone services will let you do that. So I called nine one one and had the ambulance come to my house. And they took me to the hospital and they ran some tests. Um, and I had like little oxygen tube nose thingy and they had me take some potassium and stuff and um yeah they were just like hey your organs are like super unhappy you are very dehydrated and your electrolytes are super low um want to like tell us something and I was like oh yeah fun fact about my eating disorder um I think it's killing me um and that was really kind of just it clicked Sometimes for some people, they need active recovery, like treatment programs, but I was pretty already well-equipped from the things that I remembered from my outpatient program. And essentially, I just decided I didn't want to die. And it's not to say that everything was perfect, sunshine and rainbows since that day, but um, I just, I didn't want to do it anymore. There's a lot of lying that's involved in having an eating disorder. Um, The constant binging and purging cycles are incredibly expensive and just damaging on not only your like wallet, but like your soul. You just kind of feel so drained all the time and you're so tired because you haven't eaten anything, you know, properly and for me, it was two, uh, two years. Yeah. So yeah, that's, um, kind of what happened where I just decided I can't do this anymore. And slowly I started to become a bit more open about it because I just realized nobody's really talking about it. And I found that to be incredibly frustrating because there are 30 million people in the United States alone that have an eating disorder. And that's a staggering amount of people. That means at an event of like 200 people, there's at least 20 people who are like me. And there's some solidarity in knowing that, but it's also incredibly sad. And eating disorders are you know, they can be prevented if you catch them from an early age, right? Like positive reinforcement of, you know, body image and stuff. And if we don't talk about this, if there are parents or spouses or, you know, coworkers who can help these people, then the only way they're going to know about it is if I talk about it. Wow. Um, <laughs> thank you. And 
there's so much to process there. I'm sorry. No, no. It's a loaded testimonial. (laughs) No, it was amazing. Um, Powerful. Was there... Was there anybody on the inside with you? Was there anybody that knew what you were going through that you could reach out to? Because the one thing that that I'm thinking as I listen to your story is how alone you had to feel with what you were doing and and, and why you were doing it. And those, I mean, I'm just going to call them demons, you know, that, that were just eating at you. It, that's horrible. They were constantly, you know, just in your head and and telling you that you weren't good enough or, or, or whatever the things were that were being said. Was there anybody there that, that helped you or did you just finally say enough? So um, the person that I was seeing at the time knew that I was sick. I mean, I lived with him, so um, he caught on probably um, – as quickly as most people would. Um, and I think, I think that was basically it. You know, we had broken up and that was only six months of the two year relapse. So, um, yeah, then it was just, just me and it is an incredibly lonely feeling. And it really is a lot about the the lies that will eat you up. You know, what did you do today? Seems like a pretty easy question, but for someone who's lying about 50% of the way their day went, you know, you have to, it's kind of like watching the debates. You have to not catch yourself in a lie because that's how people will find out. And the key to being successful at your eating disorder is to be deceptive. You don't want people to interfere because you are still trying to control something. And I think that's just really the worst feeling. Now, you mentioned alcohol, or you mentioned substance abuse. You didn't say mm-hmm. alcohol specifically, but, but we did mention at events. And alcohol at events is a, a huge issue. And as mm-hmm. somebody who organizes events, as well as somebody who's attended them quite a lot, it is one of those places you can hide, mm-hmm. right? And I've, I've struggled with alcohol I had my first drink when I was 12. You know, I stole a beer from a neighbor's fridge, you know, because I'm in Florida and everybody's got a fridge outside. Um, So it was just like, you know, run across, dive in the bush. Yeah. Like get, get, oh, hey, I got four, I got four beers. Um, But it's, it's one of those things that I'm curious. So obviously alcohol, what, what it was for me was it silences the voice, right? Absolutely. But you also probably, I mean, I would imagine that, I don't want to say that the, the the incessant hunger becomes normal, but but the calories in alcohol, yeah. Right. The, the, what was the alcohol for you? So it's absolutely what you said. It's you know I'm I'm essentially going insane in my head, and everything hurts, and I'm hungry all the time, and I'm incredibly irritable, and um, yeah. So you just having some wine for breakfast seems like a really rational thing because you've got Mm. a stressful day ahead of you. You know, you've got to face this whole day being hungry and making plans with people and dodging out of them if they involve food. Um, And even though alcohol is so high in calories, it's the main substance abused by people with eating disorders. Mm. Um, Like, um, so I think that that's one super interesting thing because 
as I saw it in my head, I would rather take the 700 to 1400 calories of one to two bottles of wine a day than eat food just because I knew that alcohol would in some way make me feel better. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a really fucked up sentiment, but that's really what it was. Yeah, it's, I mean, you can say it's a fucked up sentiment, but I I think I can associate with where you were on the alcohol side. I can't associate. I would never even want to to insult the situation by imagining that I could have any clue what that purging was like. Mm. Um, so, so I'm, I'm <laughs> in a weird way. I'm attracted to the alcohol problem because it's something that that I can comprehend. But and I think you're absolutely right. It's 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 kind of there for you. Yeah, it's going to help you not worry as much. It's going to help you sleep, even if it's bad sleep. It's going to it's going to mask some of the pain that you're feeling emotionally and physically. Um, so, and and then I'm just curious on on the cutting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have somebody in my life who I found out was cutting, and it was one of those things when we had the conversation that it was it was almost a punishment. Mm-hmm. For her, like that yeah. was a way that she could say, "Okay, well, I've I've punished myself. I shouldn't worry about it anymore." It was almost like a closure thing. Mm-hmm. So when when you've got that combined with with the eating disorder and the alcohol, how how did that play a role? So for me, cutting was never really about punishing myself. Um, I was just so hurt that I felt I needed to lash out in some kind of physical way. And there's just this trauma up in my brain and, and my mind is screaming all the time, but there's no way for me to do anything physically. I'm not a violent person. So, you know, I'm not going to lash out on someone else. Uh, but I, you know, just started to kind of lash out physically on my body and, you know, just, Mm. There's something about having that physical pain that mimics the mental pain that just, it made more sense to me. And sometimes, and fortunately, these were only during like super, like desperate evenings where I just, you know, I'm exhausted and I had enough. So you've, you've come out, you've been talking about this. You'd mentioned that, that you were at a conference recently, you got up on stage and, and you shared what you've been through and what I would imagine you'll always be dealing with. If, if you're in the middle of it or not, it's always there, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, so what, just, what did you share when you got up there? So um, I'm a speaking member of an organization called Prompt. And what Prompt tries to do is send speakers to tech events to speak on mental health topics. And um, we've got some speakers on depression, anxiety. um, But yeah, I'm the only speaker on um, eating disorders. And so I wanted the talk to be both informative, but also a bit emotional because I feel that it was a hugely emotional time for me. And I think eating disorders get kind of a weird presence in um, movies or TV shows or teen dramas and whatnot. You know, there's the token girl who throws up her food or doesn't eat. And for me, my eating disorder was just so much more than that. It really did 
make me the worst version of myself. And um, I was suffering just in so many ways from it. So I speak a bit on that. Um, and I also give, you know, some statistics. Like I mentioned earlier, there are 30 million people in the United States that have an eating disorder. And that's just the United States. We're not talking about Europe or, um, you know, Australia. It's not as popular in third world countries where people can't even afford to eat. It's obviously uh -huh. kind of a first world problem, like really. Um, but, um, you know, that's 20 million women and 10 million men. Um, wow. And that's, you know, uh, the words for anorexia and bulimia have only been around since the late 1800s. Uh, they were developed by um, a doctor, a British doctor, William Gull, and he had, written, he had written a paper to the Royal College of Physicians, and I think that was... 1873 is, I think, when that was. But, you know, the disorders have been around for way longer than that. This was just the first time people were writing about them as they were seeing increasing amounts of patients who were exhibiting these, you know, symptoms of disordered eating. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I like speaking on these kinds of things because um, I don't want to only just, like, emotionally touch people. I want them to have more information about eating disorders than they did before they entered that room. And if people can leave with even just the tiniest bit of empathy and understanding for it, I feel like I've done my job. And I think the most touching thing that has ever happened to me um, after giving one of these talks was someone approached me after a talk and he told me that he had a young daughter and that he left the room with a lot more to think about you know, in regards to her health than he had before he had, you know, attended that conference. And that was really touching because this is why I do it, right? I don't want to do it so people feel sorry for me or mm -hmm. people, you know, will pity me. Or I'm, I'm actually putting a lot on the line because, you know, if I... People do think of me differently now, right? I'm, I'm the girl who talks about eating disorders. and But that's okay because if one parent, one spouse, one coworker can even like see the signs, maybe mm -hmm. they can help somebody. So first of all, again, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about people in my life. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about things differently. And I'm wondering, have you had people also come up who thanked you because they thought they were alone and they realized that they weren't? I have a few friends on the internet, um, people who like, you know, the internet's kind of a weird place, but <laughs> I don't know where I would be without it. Amen. Um, <laughs> and I actually have found a kind of mini support group with a couple of special women who have reached out to me to say like, hey, you basically just outlined my life and how tough it can be. And I want to thank you for talking about it because they might not be in a position to do that. Maybe it's their job or their family mm -hmm. or something. Um, I'm in a very privileged position where I can talk about it. I do talk about it at my job and I obviously talk about it pretty publicly. My partner is incredibly supportive. Um, so being a voice for some of these, these women who can't otherwise speak up about it has really um, touched me. And it's definitely been beneficial to me because if I'm having a bad day or I'm having triggering thoughts, I have some people that I can reach out to and finding other people who understand eating disorders is really tough because, you know, you don't know who they are and um, not everybody wants to talk about it. And so I feel really fortunate that I've met these women. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you met them as well. And, and it's nice to know that, that you've got that group now. So for those of us that, that aren't as sensitive to it, that don't understand, 
what are the signs uh, that we may see and what should we do? Like if, if we think somebody's got a problem, how should we approach it? Very carefully is the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is don't just assume that people who have, you know, dropped a significant amount of weight quickly have an eating disorder. Um, and the, I think the best thing that anyone ever did for me while I was sick was they didn't outright call me on it. Um, mm-hmm. I had a very supportive friend and former coworker, Leon Gersing, um, and you know, he saw the signs and I had dropped an incredible amount of weight. I wasn't eating lunch with the groups anymore. Um, you know, gin and tonic is not lunch Mm. and uh, not the lime either. Um, he kind of just sat me down and he told me, you know, Justine, eventually this is all going to come to a head and all of the, the lies and the, you know, exhaustion, it's all going to boil up into something. And I'm going to have to eventually pay off that emotional debt is what he called it. And, you know, much like technical debt that needs to be paid off, right? You have to Mm -hmm. fix that technical debt. And this is kind of how I see my eating disorder in a way, um, paying off this emotional debt. But to kind of get back to your question, it's, it's be that Leon Gersing, that person who will give advice without making accusations, because oftentimes people with eating disorders are just so alone. And to just even have one person kind of hug you and say, this will work out or, you know, offer to just be there, that's really the best thing you can do. There's no way to force hospitalization on anybody who's over the age of 18. So what you really need to do is just tell people that you care about them and hope that they have maybe, you know, in the United States, some insurance providers will provide um, mental health um kind of access, therapists, psychologists, um, community groups, try and find information in your community. Maybe there's um, like a support group and just kind of say, I'm not sure if you need this, but this is here. But non-accusational is really the best way to go about it. Are there any signs? I, I know rapid weight loss can be a lot of different things, but is there anything that that you know about or that that you've read about in terms of things that you might notice? I mean, with like a lot of mental health issues, irritability and um, kind of distance from other things that they used to be interested in and are no longer anymore. That's always kind of a clear sign of any mental health struggle. Um, Obviously, in my case, I was drinking at lunch, and that's another kind of clear sign. It was no longer casual with my meal drinking. It was straight double gin and tonic, please and thank you kind of drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, These are signs that you can look out for. Um, Another type of bulimia that's not throwing up your food is excessive exercise. And I have known a couple of people who have suffered from that type of bulimia. Um, in my opinion, we have to be really careful because right now we're living through an age where um, there's a fad diet for everything. You know, mm. there's the Whole30, there's, you know, paleo, there's all different kinds of ways to start restricting your food. And this makes a very um, hard line to draw when someone's clearly suffering from disordered eating and when they're just a part of the next fad. These fads, in my opinion, can also lead to disordered eating. 
thing when, you know, I can't have this or, you know, this is bad for you. Um, eating disorders became even more popular after the, you know, 70s and 80s craze of no, no fat, no butter. Mm. Um, people just started restricting that. And when you start restricting your food, you no longer have a healthy relationship with what food is supposed to do for you. Um, and so these are some of the things just to look, look out for. I mean, there's really no clear sign to say this person definitely has an eating disorder. Uh, like you can spot an alcoholic, right? But um, that also makes it difficult to find people and to intervene and help them. And this probably also contributes to why so many people with eating disorders are unable to seek treatment with, you know, teenagers. It's, it's easier if you're the parent, you can put them in a program, but it's so much harder to keep an eye on adults, right? We're all living our private, private lives and um, it's just hard to tell. Well, and it's really hard to tell when you're part of a distributed team. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that, in our industry specifically, probably adds a, another level of loneliness and another level of being able to to abuse yourself to to do different things that that can make it difficult. And I know I've I've been through that with some with some teammates, and, and to a degree, you know, I, I've had some struggles. Nothing nothing major, but uh, <sighs> yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I'm I'm a remote worker, and. Um, during most of this time, I was working remotely. And you know what? That is great in some ways because I can structure my workday in a way that works for me. But unfortunately, that also left me with a lot of time um, alone. And I can get incredibly lonely. Even now, almost two years after like I started doing self-recovery, it's just like, I just get so lonely. And that's when the thoughts start to come in. And I think that is really hard on our industry. There's a lot of people in tech suffering from depression or social anxiety. And you know, when you remove that nine to five with other people around you, it leaves you vulnerable for some of these things to take shape and potentially get worse. And there's not really anyone around to kind of look out for you. And this is, you know, I try and check in on my online friends and we have a mental health channel in my company Slack at Travis that I started. And, um, you know, I try and keep tabs on people there because I know what it's like to be on that other side and to just feel like you're in the dark and you just, <laughs> you just want to hug, you know, yeah. <laughs> Virtual hugs are not as good as the real thing, but it's nice to know that somebody wants to. Absolutely. So I have to say, Travis sounds like a, an amazing organization, amazing company. And it's just wonderful that they're open and there's a mental health Slack channel. I mean, all of this sounds like it's a, a really wonderful, caring place. I'm really, really lucky. And um, I like knowing that I've in some way helped shape the way that we are at Travis. Um, I think that was probably the nicest compliment my CEO, Matthias Meyer, has ever given me was just he kind of laid it out that I've made a huge difference in the way Travis, you know, kind of deals with these sort of things. Um, I always encourage every company to look at some of the things that we do at Travis and see if they can put that into their organization. Like, you know, I have unlimited... Um, mental health days. And I don't need to lie about it. I don't need to say I'm sick or anything, you know, much like if someone has the flu, you want them to stay home and just get better. Right. And I'm, to me, mental health days are exactly the same thing because we all know what burnout feels like and, you know, terrible feelings um, can come from that. And so it's important for companies to look after their employees and kind of allow for these, these days that sure, you're not shipping something, but you know, you're also helping a human. And I always say, never forget that humans are behind software. It's a super important thing to keep in mind. 
Uh, that's a that's a wonderful thing to keep in mind. So we're almost at time, and I was just wondering if anybody's listening that's having a struggle, if it's an eating disorder, if it's alcohol, if it's if it's just depression, just depression, you know, if it's just depression, if you're just, <laughs> just dealing with, the, you know, whatever, just, just pick yourself up. It's just depression. No, <laughs> if, if, smile on your face. If, if they're going through uh, these challenges, are, are there any places that you would recommend? I, I know you mentioned, you know, look and see what, what you've got in your local communities, but are there any places that you're aware of that are, are really good? Um, let's see. So I know personally that I'm not a support group kind of person. Um, I just, that doesn't work for me. What's actually helped me is finding other people on Twitter who have been talking about mental health. And, um, I'm lucky that I've been introduced to some of them through prompt. But, um, if you are the kind of person who just wants to know that, um, you know, other people are suffering the way you're suffering and maybe they have tips. I think, you know, looking around um, Craigslist or your um, local um, clinic might have um, options for support groups or people you can see. Also check with your general practitioner. I think it's easy for some of us to talk to doctors because there's kind of this confidentiality thing that, you know, you know that they want to see you well. Um, My local GP from a very small family practice also offers... um, you know, a therapist. And so these are kind of resources that you might not be aware of in your community. You know, I think it's so important to realize that we, a lot of us do have great resources in our own community and we just don't think about it. So anybody listening that is having struggles, you know, take a look. There, there's somebody around there. There's, I think the idea of your general practitioner is a great idea, especially with that confidentiality. And, you know, my, my dad was a psychologist and, you know, he helped a lot of people, you know, and, and so, so find somebody you can talk to, right? Absolutely. I think that's the key is just finding someone you're comfortable talking with. I mean, even if that's me, um, if anybody's listening, you can always reach out to me on Twitter. Um, but, I think that it's just important to talk to someone because you never know how relieving that can be. And talking to just one person might be the step towards getting help. And I never want anyone out there to harm themselves or to hurt like I ever hurt. I just, I can't even fathom the fact that there are at least 30 million people in this country that feel the way I feel. That's already a terrifying number. Um, And absolutely seek help, especially with eating disorders, if you know you have the resources to do so, because eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any other mental illness, and this is serious stuff, and it's very important that you seek help. Well, Justine, thank you so much for being on the show today and for sharing this. I think it helps everyone. If, you, if you're in a good place in your life or if you're really, really struggling, it's important to keep an eye on each other and, and make sure we're helping each other. So thank you for helping today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you letting me share my story. Uh, You're welcome. And everybody listening, we'll be back next week with another episode. Have a good one.